Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. Investigating homicides is a tough speciality in policing. It's complicated. From trying to establish the facts, gathering evidence and supporting an often distraught family, there are many areas of consideration for any SIO and his or her team. Years ago, police officers didn't have access to the technologies and advanced DNA procedures which have evolved so rapidly in the last two decades. It's true that mistakes can and have occurred, and my next guest gives us one of these very examples, involving the homicide investigation of young Ricky Neve, who was found deceased in November 1994, after he had been reported missing by his mother, Ruth Neve, a lady who would later be charged with, but acquitted at trial, of her son's murder later in 1996. In this two-part episode with retired Assistant Chief Constable Paul Forward, we explore the very challenges Paul faced when he led a group of dedicated detectives who reopened this complex and troubling case using state-of-the-art DNA procedures and revisiting vital leads and persons of interest many years later. It's both deeply saddening and rewarding to know the efforts of police officers like Paul and his colleagues will do and have done everything they can in their power to bring criminals like the man who murdered Ricky Neve to justice. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. It's another week. It's another 
sensational guest who's had an incredible uh, 30 plus years in the police and to add on to that exposure in the military so a great transition out of that public service into policing and led on a number of high profile investigations across Cambridge and a number of number of other counties so I'm very much looking forward to this conversation about some of the intricacies of some of the more high profile investigations and we're also going to touch on uh, the challenges that were COVID-19 because the police and all other public services had a number of challenges during that period and policing was no different in terms of managing new legislation policy and procedure introduced by government and also supporting you know the, the NHS with um, ambulance drivers and many other different operational issues. So without further ado let me welcome to the podcast retired police commander Paul Forward. Paul welcome to the podcast good evening and how are you? Thanks, Ollie. Um, yeah, and I'm very grateful to um, to be very humble to uh, to be interviewed. So thank you very much. No, it's it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on. And you know, you've listened to a couple of episodes, and under no illusion of how this is going to start. But like every great detective, we wind back the clock to the start and ask why policing from the defence force. Well, do you know what's a good question? Really, I mean, I've listened to a, a couple of the the interviews and. Um, I, I never actually ever wanted to be a police officer, which is quite quite interesting. I <laughs> I, I only ever uh, wanted to join the military, and um, and I joined the military at the age of seventeen years of age. That's all I wanted to do, and um, and had a fantastic time in there. Saw things, experienced things, learned a lot about myself, teamwork, and you know, and leadership, and humility, and you know, served overseas on you know. For, for the um for the United Kingdom and and I was getting towards the end of my service um uh, in my early 20s at that stage for the, the sort of time I'd signed on for and um uh, and it was what shall I do now and my girlfriend at the time now my my wife said why don't you join why don't you think about the police service and I and I'd never really thought about the police I never knew any police officers and um and I and I decided to apply, but I was quite, it's quite daunting to be honest, because I, you know, which is quite interesting with today's standards. I was never really uh, an academic. I was never studious. I was always very worried around, you know, what it would entail and would I be able to do it and would I fit in? And, 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 um, and, and anyway, I applied and went through the process. I decided I didn't want to be a, a police officer in, in my area where I, where I grew up in, in the Cambridgeshire area. So I applied for a number of different forces and ended up, joining the the police Sussex police uh and was posted to Brighton um and uh and never looked back really and, and here I am today let's talk about those early years and and stepping through one disciplined environment of the military and into the police and you walk into the training school for the first day Policing is an incredibly complex vocation. We say it every week in terms of the intricacies of policy and procedure and legislation. How did you cope with the studious side of the studies as well as the, the practical, more physical sides of the policing studies? Well, it was it was really interesting. So back in the, the, the day when I, you know, when I joined is that we we all we, we all were trained. I was on a cohort of about 12 from Sussex. And I think it was myself and two others were, were ex-military. The rest were all from university. And um, and it was a bit of a mix and match, really. But what happened is, is we did something like a month's training in force. And then we all went to Ashford, which was the regional college where we were mixed with colleagues from Kent and Thames Valley and Hampshire and City of London Police and, and, and other forces. 
and um and it and, and i have to say i really enjoyed it i i um i went there really really worried around the the sort of studying about what it could be but i was quite confident with the the sort of fitness and the and i guess the sort of like you know look at you know speaking to people and problem solving and being quite practical i've been you know because of my my sort of career in the military i was quite you know i was quite confident in terms of what i could and couldn't do and so i guess i really you know myself and other colleagues we we worked and shared with others uh, and 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 fed off each other really and i remember sort of you know going for the the exercises and and doing the, the sessions it was very very theoretical we had to learn definitions of law and and then we'd have to test them and but i always found it really, really helpful going out and doing the practical sessions and and, mm. and learning from there really and I, I just got a lot from it and i and i just enjoyed it and the more and the more i enjoyed it the more i was interested in it so i at that stage i have to say from being really worried and daunted about it i it actually you know i actually just got more confident the more i did with it to be honest what what was family's reaction to moving out of the military and into policing? Was there a, was there questions asked as to why that transition was occurring? Well, it's a good question actually because none none of my family were ever in in the police service and and sort of the you know the school where I grew up and and colleagues you know that I'd worked with previously they probably you know wouldn't have considered me as a as a police officer just because as a youngster I you know I I just wasn't. An academic i wasn't involved or interested in that sort of stuff and um but i have to say um once i was in you know i i've never had any any trouble i've never had any i was really i was really worried because i probably didn't know any police officers about you know what would people think what would they say would your friends stop talking to you and what would your family think but i have to say everyone has, has always been massively supportive and i guess really if they you know if they if they're true friends and whatever career you did, even the police service, if they weren't mm. happy with that, then they're probably not good friends. So, but no, they're absolutely supportive. And I, you know, and and, and for me, if if anything, it's always been a conversation piece. If anything, like go the years have rolled on, people talk to you about, you know, being a police officer and the different roles you do and ask you all sorts of questions. Uh, and people find it more interesting. So actually, I've never ever had any trouble ever at all. What's those first couple of years like out in Brighton? You know, Brighton historically is a bit of a touristy area. It's also one which has got a very diverse melting pot of punks amongst its demographic and the people that live within um, within its boundaries. But were there real challenges that you faced early on in your career in terms of getting used to the role of policing on the streets and, and dealing with antisocial behaviour and dealing with domestic incidents? Uh, absolutely so so sort of back in when when i joined the police is that we walked and and i and i think this is very very different from sort of policing today that's not that's not a criticism i was thinking in terms of demand and mm. you know the profiles now but we walked and i and i was very very fortunate you know to that you know i walked for a couple of years and and i worked in an area called london road in brighton it's on the 7b used to be i remember it and and i and Brighton was really, really busy place. It was a little bit like a Met Borough, to be honest, in terms of the, you know, it, Sussex was a lovely, lovely county. But then Brighton was just like this city that, that sort of had Hove as well, that, you know, now Brighton and Hove. And and it was just a very, very urban place. It's quite interesting. When I first went into Sussex Place and everyone said, where are you posted to? And I said, Brighton. And I quickly realised all the other people there were from Sussex. They'd all deliberately, they'd all intentionally said, we want to go to Sussex Police but anywhere other than Brighton. As such, which is quite, <laughs> but I, but I, but I have to say, I loved it because 
so I walked, I walked for a couple of years and I'd, and I'd had some really good sort of like experienced tutor constables who took me around and they, they'd stop me every hundred metres and say, right, where are we? And expect you to, you know, understand the roadmaps and, and know where you are. And I'd, and I'd pick up things and listen to things. And, and some of the, the benefits around walking, when I think about it now compared to, to policing of today, I guess, is that, is that I would get sent to a job. And I'd have time to think about what I was going to do and how I was going to approach it. And I and I and 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 so in a way it was really helpful. And I'd always had it drilled into me as well as a as a young Bobby that always smile at people and say hello to people. And people find it hard when you are intentionally nice and friendly and open to be hostile to that does hostile towards you. That doesn't always work, but as you know, as a walking beat Bobby at the time, it 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 really helped me, you know, and I and I and, and at the weekends, we would get pulled into, you know, to do public order vans. Brighton's got a very, very lively nighttime economy, loads of nightclubs and pubs and, you know, and, and, and at the weekend. So we there was all sorts of things going on. So in those early days, you know, absolutely fantastic place. You know, so this, it, there was just something happening all the time. Was there, did you get, because you spent a lot of your career in very significant investigative roles uh, across a number of incredibly large and complex investigations which we're going to go into very shortly but how soon did you get that investigative bug so i i i think when i was very fortunate so when i was when i was a, a, a beat bobby i sort of had picked up i was left alone to do my own investigations and i sort of got involved in sort of you know beat investigations as they were uh, and it and it dawns on me that actually, you know, I quite enjoyed it. I like thinking about it, like problem solving. And also, I'd some of my tutor constables at the time, they all they all ended up being detectives. And of course, they they some of their sort of traits had, had come out on me a little bit, I guess, really. Uh, and I and 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 I applied to be a detective and I and you know and uh, I applied to be a DC at, at, at Brighton. I, I remember the process. I remember you went up as an aide, um, and then you had to go through a sort of selection process. And um, and I absolutely loved it. And it was back in those days as well, where you know, where for example, as a detective, you're expected to have informants, so covert mm. human intelligence sources, as they're called now. You're expected to be proactive. You're expected to go and make your own inquiries. And you were expected to work as part of the team. And I, and I have to say, during the, certainly the 90s, you know, it, it was very, very different from CID of today. But but I had a, a fantastic time. I worked with some brilliant people who were very, very experienced, you know, and they would teach me the right way to do things. And this is what you should consider. And this is how you should think. And, and I just, you know, and I, and, I, and I was very, very fortunate that I sort of like straddled you know, as a, DC, as, a, as a DC, between different areas of the CID, the sort of like the proactive world where I'd be involved in managing intelligence operations and dealing with informants um, and, you know, being on warrants. Conversely, to the reactive side where I'd be dealing with, you know, rapes and, and robberies and murders because we didn't have murder teams in those days. It was it was literally, you know, divisional CID. Um and those sort of inquiries. And I absolutely loved it. You know, there were so many things that, you know, I was able to be exposed to and see and listen and, and just see that I, I, I sort of reflect back now and I think to myself, flipping heck, you know, there was just so much going on. And Brighton was such a busy, busy place. I mean, I, 
you know, in the 90s, we the IRA was still was still active. We had an IRA bomb bomb go, you know, being planted there. We had ongoing murder inquiries. We had lots of organised crime groups coming down, supplying Class A drugs and things. So it was a busy, busy time, certainly in the 90s. Did you have any involvement with the IRA incidents in Brighton at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I so I, I remember I was transitioning actually from um, from being a beat bobby to the CID. I remember sort of being involved in the initial inquiries um, many many years ago. The the IRA had, had sort of blown up the the, the Grand Hotel in, in Brighton and caused all sorts of horrendous. And there was politicians who were injured and people that were killed. And and there were, and certainly when I joined, there was there were police officers that had been part of that, and wow. and that was always remembered. But of course, when I was there in the nineties, they, you know, they were still active. The IRA. I remember they, they effectively they planted, they tried to blow up the Palace Pier, uh, the Brighton Pier, uh, and it turns out that, you know, effectively they'd laid Semtex in sort of the panniers of of cycles at the at the sort of uh, the rendezvous point where people were evacuating to, and which which was discovered by a you know a very sort of um, eagle-eyed police officer who managed to evacuate people, but ended up getting involved in that inquiry in terms of sort of you know doing the investigation as I sort of transitioned to the CID, you know. So even in those days, you know, just there was just something happening all the time, you know. The, the, you know, there was things going on that just kept kept us busy, you know, as as, as officers, I guess. There are people that gravitate into CID who sometimes find out that it's it's not quite for them. You know, um, it is very much about attention to detail. It's about, you know, sometimes a lot of patience in terms of big inquiries. And we're going to talk about probably one of the biggest ones that you've taken part in. But when you're taking part in effectively what is a terrorist related investigation at a young age in terms of being in CID, there must be a huge amount of satisfaction in terms of being relied upon to take part in something so significant like quite rewarding in the sense of you've been part of it absolutely i mean i i i i learned at a, a sort of very early age and and you know and this went all the way through a career really is is that you know all the operations and investigations is that you're absolutely part of a team whatever it was whether it's terrorist or a murder or a robbery or a, you know a kidnap or whatever you were part of a team you are you were an important cog of that team you know, and everyone had a part to play on that. And I, and I, and at an early age, you know, it, it become, you know, it just dawned on me. And, and also the amount of specialisms in, in sort of CID in terms of, you know, for example, you know, whether you're an interviewer or a disclosure officer or whether you're involved in family liaison, you know, or whether you were, you know, part of the arrest team or a proactive team or doing the intelligence, you know, there were just lots of key different parts that, you know, the, the, I guess the public don't always see. And, you know, and, and modern crime, you know, in terms of the, the big, big jobs, you know, it, you know what, what we see on TV where the sort of like detective sort of like rolls his eyes and he or she solves it, that doesn't always work like that. The reality is, is the best ideas come from the ground floor and they really do. It's the people who put their hands up and effectively said, what about this? Have we considered this and thought about this? And I, and I learned that all the way through my career, really. I mean, I was very, I was very fortunate because I, I stayed at Brighton um, within the sort of CID ranks. And I remember transitioning to being a detective sergeant um, uh, in, in uh, at Brighton CID. Uh, and I'd, and I'd, and I'd really, really, you know, I was very, very fortunate, but I ended up moving on to um, a sort of proactive unit, the drug squad in, in Brighton. And, and I had a brilliant team of 
experienced officers around me, really experienced. And, and you know, and I think back to, you know, some of their names now, you know, Paul Davison and Mark English and Mark Butterfield. And, and these were like iconic detectives. And, 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 and we, you know, there's lots of other people that I could name and name and name, but we effectively... I remember in those days we were sort of like Brighton was being overtaken by, you know, class A drugs and we were getting organised crime groups coming down. And we were doing we'd done the traditional, you know, warrants and raids and, and things over the years that, you know, we, we that have been tried and tested. Uh, and we decided that we were just going to we were going to use different we we're going to do different things and different tactics. And effectively, we for a number of years, we were we embarked on sort of continuous undercover operations. Uh, across uh, Brighton in terms of trying to infiltrate and target organised crime groups. And we had some phenomenal success all the way through. Uh, and, and and I go back to probably what I talked about earlier on around, you know, just learning the, learning the ropes from being a reactive investigator to then also being a proactive investigator. And, and during those years, we had some fantastic um, operations. You know, we, we, I remember one... Uh, Operation May, where we had a, a, an untouchable group from Liverpool who would come down to the south coast and would just deal heroin and supply heroin on a on a really high high level all the way across the south coast, and we managed to infiltrate them, and you know and all of their um, lieutenants and I remember over a period of months, you know that we eventually had sort of put undercovers in, officers into them and and we'd done other things as well, and. You know, we were able to secure and preserve our evidence, and 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 in a matter of time, we were able to arrest them and 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 basically remand them, take them out. And I remember that hitting the media in Brighton, and this this gang had been operating, you know, with impunity for years and years wow. and years, and were taken away. You know, so we we I was very fortunate to work with some brilliant detectives and investigators who had a lot of experience and knowledge uh, in in these particular areas. We've spoken a lot about. Um managing trauma and emotion and because you know in your early days of cid work you're thrown at the deep end you go to probably you know everything that's available to you so you can get the experience and exposure but equally we, we don't know how we're going to respond when we go to scenes of trauma or violent death and homicides and and very serious sexual offenses um which can be quite distressing to deal with how are you able to process and compartmentalize what you're exposed to in terms of were you able to debrief with your colleagues? Is it something you're able to go home and speak to, you know, family and say, you know, just how was your coping mechanism structured? It, do you know, it's a really good question because I, I, I think certainly when I first joined the police service that, you know, it was considered and dealt with, but nowhere near to the level as it is now in terms of, you know, yeah. trim and other things going on. But I, my, my first experience, Ollie, with, with death was in the military, if I'm being honest. So I, yeah. the age of 19, I, you know, unfortunately had seen colleagues killed. And I, and I, and remember, um, I'd never seen a dead person before at that age. I'd never seen, and I, and I remember some, some hours afterwards being sort of like, you know, my, my sort of N, senior NCO sergeant at the time come over to me, put his arm around me and, and said to me, fully because that's what he called they called me fully are you are you okay and and um and i and, and i was fine but i remember it now and i and i and interestingly when i went into the police service you start off as a beat bobby and you think back to your career when you started 
is is that you start off with sudden deaths and you start mm. off with seeing people and, and dealing with families and 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 I remember being able to um compartmentalize it and I and I can because I can remember it being able to compartmentalize it and, and I and I've been very fortunate that I I was I was able to do that throughout my career. Now people deal with it in different ways and they do and I've seen it over the years. And and I and the way that I dealt with it is that I had a you know I I had a loving wife, I had good friends, I had people I could speak to. Um I enjoyed my fitness. Um I'd I'd go for a run uh, and do some thinking and just getting some time away and I'd speak to people and that's how I dealt with it. But I I know lots of people who I've worked with over the years as, as you will do who have dealt with it in different ways and some people have not dealt with it very well through the trauma that's 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 occurred to them really so it i I, i'm so pleased that today it is so much better so when i when i roll on many many years to the future um you know when i you know when i'm leading merger investigations and uh, and and you know being exposed to stuff my staff are being exposed to stuff i think like now we're far more aware we're far more focused we're far more supportive than we've ever been before. But when I think back probably to those early days, it, it probably was nowhere near as organised and nowhere near as considered no. as it probably is now, really. It's a bit of a shame. In terms of um, you, you, you're moving to the area of investigative work and, and carrying out some of these big cases, big inquiries, when was the next point in your career in the early days when you realized that you wanted to start taking on greater responsibility in, in a leadership capacity and that sort of early promotional part. It, so, so Ollie, I, 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 one of the, I'm always asked as a sort of million dollar question. I, I was very fortunate to finish as an assistant chief counsel when people say to me, mm. wow, you must've, you know, aimed for that when you first joined the police service. Absolutely not. Never, ever. And, and I, and, and I think, to, and, and my, my advice and guidance to any, you know, any listener or any police officer or anyone who wants to, you know, do well is, is you know, look, just work hard, do the right thing, be as good as you can at your own job and good things will happen. And I never, ever sort of had any intention of, of going through the ranks. So I, I fell into promotion. I remember doing my um, my sergeant's uh, uh, qualifications because I, I, I had a young son on the way and I thought to myself, I better do it now. I was, I'll never do it. And I ended up doing it. And then I, I, when I was doing it, I actually found out I was actually okay at it. Uh, and actually the more I did, the more responsibility, things just happened. And I, and, and I was, a, I was a detective sergeant for a number of years. And um, I think it's like five years. I had no intentions ever of, of going the, through the ranks uh, and I and I was reticent because I never wanted to be a governor. Never ever. It was never <laughs> on my my radar. I never wanted to be. I just wanted to be a DS, a, a career detective. And and I and I ended up anyway. So I ended up um, doing the inspector's exam. And this is the irony of it. I had so many. I had so much rest days owed to me that I remember saying to my DI at the time, "Look, can I take some time off? I'm going to try and study for the the, the inspector's exam." And I took I took a month off, and I basically crashed. The, did a crash course on the in my own time in terms of the the exam did the exam amazingly passed it got no idea how I passed it but I passed it <laughs> uh, and and um and and within months were told I was past it and I was and I was in the sort of like the promotion pool for inspector I think to myself I didn't actually want to be an inspector I just <laughs> I just I just secured myself a job on the um on the force drug squad 
uh, in Sussex and uh, as a DS. And um, so anyway, I, I, I got the exam and um, within a month, things happen in police. And this happens all the time, you know, just, in a, you know, people move around, etc. And I got summoned up to the superintendent's office and effectively said to me, um, we want you to temp up as a DI. And I remember thinking, oh, no, I didn't really want to do this. And I was in as a temporary DI and, and I stayed at Brighton. I worked in the, the main office of CID uh, and, uh, and, you know, and, and it was just a really, really great experience. And that was my first step. But I, but you know what as well, I remember it as well, because I, I, I remember sort of, you know, making that transit. The biggest transition I ever made, I think, in terms of policing in ranks was moving from DS to DI, because I remember all the time when I was a DS, a detective sergeant, I was one of the team and I was literally, I'd be out in warrants, I'd be out in arrests, I'd be interviewing people. I'd, you know, I'd be really hands dirty, but also I could step back and, and supervise. When I was a DI, a detective inspector, I was a governor and I literally was that person that everyone put the red down when they walked through the room, which was quite, quite amazing. But it's quite, it's quite funny, but that, that was the biggest transition for me. I guess. What were the, what were the challenges? At, you know, there's obviously there's different challenges at each kind of level of rank because there's greater responsibility. You become a little bit more strategic as you promote, because obviously there's a far greater um, responsibility to not only manage people, but budgets and strategy and implement those and challenges. And then you've got the challenges from external stakeholders, such as your local MPs and councillors and all these other bits and pieces that we don't think about. What was the biggest challenge you faced when you entered that first commission rank of inspector? I, I, so when I, when I was a, a detective inspector, I'd been used to, to arresting villains and locking people up and, you know, leading on, on operations and then all of a sudden, I was being summoned into the by the superintendent, the detective chief inspector, being asked about performance. Uh, and I and I and mm. and whilst I'd been part of that as as a detective sergeant, all of a sudden my responsibilities were very much around now that you know we we need to look up, for example, our detection figures, our crime solved. This is what we need to do. We need to be looking at the budget far more far more sort of like you know focused than we were before. We need to be considering around. These other sort of strategic responsibilities link into the, the the sort of policing plan as it was at the time for, for Brighton, uh, and I remember really, really it, uh, it took my breath away in terms of the the, I, the transition into into management. And I and I and I don't think really I I because I, I often thought about this because it's it's happened at different levels of, of the organ the, the police service as I've gone through the ranks is that. You, you, you don't turn up and, and, and you're made an inspector or a detective inspector that day. And, you know, once you pass your, pro, your, your board or your process, the URA, it doesn't happen like that. You, you, it's a bit like doing your driving test. You pass your driving test and then you learn to drive. And that's, yeah. how I found, that's how I found being an inspector in terms of once I was in there, I actually had to learn that, you know, there's other responsibilities. I need to be thinking much, much wider than just my own particular area. I need to be thinking about wider considerations across the division, other departments, outside, etc. Uh, and and that continued, and and and, um, and and learning new things as well. So it was it was really interesting, really interesting. Now we're gonna. I'd, I'd, I want to talk about a period in your career, which is when you returned to Cambridge Constabulary in two thousand five as Detective Chief Inspector as Head of Serious and Organised Crime where you led and implemented the force response to serious and organised crime tackling human trafficking, Operation Radium, 
which was sex sexual exploitation, kidnap and financial crime and targeting drug trafficking operations. Hidden and enslaved. In unknown numbers. The true scale of modern slavery in the UK is in the tens of thousands. Unlikely victims slipping through the cracks. These are people traffickers in the English Channel and making an early start. It is dawn off the coast of northern France and they're making their first pickups of the day. The trafficker, he says to this lady, oh, if the doors are locked, I will smash the doors and get my way into the property. They don't really care about gates. What they do care is only the profit and themselves. There's an awful lot in amongst that, but I wanted to focus around Operation Radium. Uh, tell us about that operation. Sounds fascinating, incredibly complex, and equally a lot of pressure on your shoulders now as the DCI. Uh, absolutely. So I, I transitioned. I decided to move back to Cambridgeshire, my family, uh, in terms of, and I, and I went back to Cambridgeshire, but then went off onto the National Crime Squad for a number of years, where I, you know, I become more specialist in terms of serious and organised crime. Um, I then, after a number of years, returned to Cambridgeshire. Uh, and I came back to Cambridgeshire as a detective chief inspector. And exactly as you said, I, I went into Cambridgeshire, uh, implemented, uh, set up and implemented their sort of response to serious and organised crime. And it was a bit, it was in those days where people didn't really understand what serious and organised crime really was in terms of what does that mean? How does that work? And 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 we went through quite a lot of education, I think, across the, this is the wider police service, not just Cambridgeshire. It's, it's things like, you know, for example, the people involved in people trafficking, people involved in drug distribution, people involved in sexual exploitation. It was all part of organised crime. And in Cambridgeshire at that time, we were getting increasing, increasing reports of exploitation of females. And so, you know, especially around the sort of Peterborough area, which is the northern part of Cambridgeshire. Um, and so we launched Operation Radium and it was a it was a sort of focused operation where we were sort of targeting locations and uh, and venues where women were being exploited. And we, you know, and it was, it was I have to say it was a real eye opener because I I I probably been involved in tackling organised crime by that time for a number of years at, you know, mainly drug distribution and, and probably kidnap and extortion and stuff like this. But when you start looking at sexual exploitation, we, you know, we uncovered, a, a, you know, organised crime groups that were exploiting, you know, these vulnerable women and they effectively were being brought over from overseas. They were being set up in nail bars, in, um, in brothels, um, and in working houses, and effectively, you know, they'd have their passports taken away from them, they were being paid pittance, and they were effectively being used as, as, as slaves. And we, you know, and, and our investigation effectively went on for a number of, you know, a year or two, where we we were investigating these, uh, these venues and carrying out operations, rescuing uh, victims and survivors as we would we, we sort of um, would class them. Have you got some clothes? Where's your clothes, more importantly? This is a rescue mission. So there's four Romanian girls in there, all basically in the lingerie. It's just being used as a brothel. 24 missed calls. They've been constantly going on. 
Police suspect the women have been trafficked to the UK and forced into prostitution. These were people that, you know, when we effectively would turn up at a nail bar or a brothel, you know, or, or another venue or location, you know, they were so pleased to see us. But but I can also remember as well, and, and most of them were from overseas. They weren't they weren't UK survivors and victims. But I can remember as well, you know, instances and scenarios when we did turn up. You know, and because they were so used to dealing with law enforcement from their own country, we we bring them back to the, the police station or a place of safety. And they then say to us, what are you going to do to us? Are you going to hurt us? Are you going to kill us? And I, and I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, wow. we're, the, we're the UK police. How? Why, why would you think that? And so so for me, it was a real eye-opener in terms of vulnerability around, mm. you know, in terms of how people are exploited uh, and the wider organised crime groups that were going out there. And sadly, it's still going on today, you know, in, in, you know, across the whole of the UK, unfortunately. When does, it's an interesting question in terms of, you know, the UK kind of grappling with this serious and organised crime almost definition. What is serious and organised crime? So for those of our listeners that aren't from a policing background, when does a crime or a group become serious organised crime? What, 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 what does that definition really entail? Well, do you know, I mean, back back in the day, there used to be there used to be specific definitions around what it what it would be in terms of, you know, what would be a serious crime. But in essence, it's when a number of individuals are working together with a common purpose in terms of to commit serious offences for a variety of, of crimes they may commit. And that could be as things, you know, people trafficking, kidnapping, extortion, drug supplying, racketeering, um, money laundering. You know, there are so many different connotations around it, which is very, very different. And generally, it's a sort of it's a bit of a. It's a it, it's a bit of a proactive uh, peace of mind from the organised crime groups that are involved in it. You know, when you think of of murders, you know, a murder is committed. It happens. There's a victim. There's there's a scene. There's an investigation, and and it and it happens. Serious organised crime is 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 quite different in terms of that it's happening day in day out. It's happening behind behind the, the sort of like you know behind our eyes. People aren't seeing it. Uh, and it's happening where you least expect it, and it happens at all levels. You know, you know, it's not, it's not sort of conduced to to one particular group. It happens across industries in so many different ways. One of the other challenges the country has faced, in certainly since nine eleven, is the increase in terrorism. Obviously, we had that period, seventies, eighties, and nineties, around the 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 activities of the IRA, but very much since September eleventh, it's been this um, these fundamental Islamic groups committing you know atrocities across the world. But you have led on dealing with one of probably the greatest risk at the moment, which is the escalation in far right extremism. And your work in between two thousand eight and two thousand twelve. You're promoted to divisional superintendent. Again, larger remit, more people, larger budgets, greater responsibility, more accountability. You're now respond. You're now reporting to even greater ranks in terms of being called into the chief super's office and, you know, probably even higher commanders. Mm. You, you talk about responding to the rise in extremists and, and namely the English Defence League. Good evening. Four people have been arrested at a rally today organised by the English Defence League. There were violent clashes as thousands of people turned out for both this rally and a counter-demonstration from Unite Against Fascism.
were four arrests in East London as the co-leaders of the far-right English Defence League tried to use the occasion to spread their own message. But the demonstration turned nasty. BDL supporters had come from all over the country. Some sang and chanted, while others explained why they'd come. It's not a racist thing. It's here to stand up and say we've had enough of it and we're sick of being a minority. For, for those of our listeners that aren't familiar with what is commonly referred to as the EDL, what challenges do they present? Police forces right across the country and in your position as the divisional superintendent? So, I mean, it's a really interesting period of my career then, Ollie, really, because I, I'd been promoted to superintendent. My intentions were to remain as a detective, but I remember getting invited into the, the office of the chief constable at the time, Julie Spence, a uh, very, very um, experienced chief constable, now the Lord Lieutenant for Cambridgeshire. And she sort of said to me, she said, Paul, you've been a detective all through your career. Um, you probably won't thank me for this, but you're going back in uniform uh, and you're going to be a divisional superintendent. And, um, and I ended up... Um, going to what was the sort of Fenland and Huntington, first of all, and then going to Peterborough afterwards. But I have to say, I absolutely loved it because I learned so much around managing people, managing strategic issues, working with communities and, you know, dealing with some tricky, tricky issues. And and and, and the English Defence League was one of those, you know, Peterborough was the sort of like the deputy divisional commander for for Peterborough, I worked with a really experienced divisional commander, a guy called Andy Hebb. And, and and the way that we worked is he was sort of like the face of it in terms of managing the sort of politics. Uh, mm. And I would deal with all the operational side, of, but linking with the communities. And Peterborough was a really, really sort of like multicultural um, city. You know, there were a hundred different uh, nationalities and cultures there. There were, there were bits of deprivation there. There was large Muslim communities. And it was a really challenging city in, in so many ways but a really fulfilling city and then out of the blue out of the blue the english defense league and you as you you know you mentioned they're far right they were you know they were up and coming they 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 sort of started off in luton uh led by a guy called tommy robinson and they decided all of a sudden it was a sort of like a, a far right english patriotic uh type uh, demonstration uh, and they decided that they were going to come to Peterborough. So this was the first time the English Defence League had ever come to Cambridgeshire. Uh, and of course, you can imagine the, the you know, the, the way that they they demonstrated, you know, was extremist. It it, it provoked it's very an, very antagonistic. Totally, it provoked local communities. I mean, I, and it was quite, it was really quite interesting how they did it because I. You know, we did a, you know, learn so much about them in terms of how they operate. They would make speeches about, you know, the, the sort of like, you know, the, the profit. Uh, and they would they, they would go so far down the line, but it's not they wouldn't go over the line to commit offences. But they would suggest things and they would, you know, they would be they would be really provocative that would cause offence for communities. And and um, and I remember that they, you know, they decided they were going to come to 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 Peterborough um we embarked on a large operation um, i was the sort of like the, the the sort of community superintendent in terms of looking after that and we we had to work with local communities to reassure them and at the time as well as and this is what people don't think about as well is that when you get a a demonstration like the english defense league you want to come 
you know your starting position of course is their right to 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 protest and march you know you got you can't just stop these people you've got to have a reason to do it and and so we had to try and work with them as best as we could do but what you always get as well is you get an anti an anti um demonstration as well so you get a sort of counter demonstration from people who effectively don't want them to be there so you've got to then manage the other demonstration as well Uh, and and i remember in this uh, particular demonstration is that we had we had thousands of people turning up and we had to call in mutual aid and we had you know we had horses and we had public order we did lots of community reassurance with the muslim communities who i have to say were fantastic they were really 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 thoughtful they were very very you know trying to calm everybody down uh, and 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 it was it was a real test and challenge for the city uh, as such uh, and so both demonstrations went off um um and uh, and thankfully there was you know minimum public order um but it's probably one of the largest public order. It was the largest public order uh, demonstration that in, certainly within Cambridgeshire at that particular time. Uh, and of course, they then rolled on to lots of other cities thereafter. But the, I have to say, what came out of it though, Ollie, is that you know it actually brought us all together. It brought the police and communities together in terms of working together to try and counter hate and counter some of the the narrative that was being you know, that was being sort of communicated out by these sort of far right groups. Uh, and actually, there was a lot of good that come out of it. We're going to talk about three big jobs that have probably uh, throughout your career, which have really kind of emphasised the incredible work that you have done. Um, the first one I, I think we've we've got to touch on, um, and we're not going to go in particularly date order here, is, is, is only because I think policing right across the country is grappling with the challenges of policing itself in terms of identifying people that should not be in public service wearing the uniform carrying out the duties because they don't have the ethics integrity and the standards to which we expect and i think there is a level of concern from the communities as to how we operate and how we do police within our own organizations when we identify it the particular operation to which you had a significant involvement in terms of overseeing and behind the scenes in terms of making some significant decisions was operation brogan if you know operation brogan was an investigation into the extortion being committed uh, identified by a member of the police force to which obviously you were overseeing are you able to tell us a little bit about the investigation the challenges that you faced once you identify actually who your subject person is yeah no of course ollie so so I, at the time um i i was probably i was head of crime i was a detective chief superintendent for um the head of bedfordshire cambridgeshire and hertfordshire major crime unit and, and our remit was murders and uh, manslaughters and um, stranger rapes and serious serious crime, but also kidnap and extortion. Uh, and I remember we we uh, I remember getting a phone call that uh, you know a businessman had walked into the, the front office at Luton Police Station and had basically sort of said there'd been a note left on his window that um, with pictures of him um, visiting the lady of the night saying effectively, you know, pay a thousand pounds, take it to this location. Otherwise people are going to find out what you've been up to. Uh, and the way that it worked in our force, it's in different forces, it works in different ways is that that automatically gets sent through it to my department because it's a crime in action. That's what we're trained to do. We're all kidnap SIOs. Um, uh, and that's what we, we did. So it came into, uh, into my unit but at the time as well, at the time as well, is that Bedfordshire had um, 24 hours in police custody, which is a sort of popular 
Channel 4 uh, show, reality show that follows Bedfordshire police around uh, and films things happening. And they picked up that this guy walked in uh, into the, the front office. And, and, and those people that are used to dealing with crime and action and kidnap will know is that, you know, we generally try and keep them secret. We don't try and tell people what's going on for a variety of reasons because there's a load of covert and proactive stuff that we do behind the scenes. So anyway, they find out what's going on. Um, I, I initially um, reject their offer to get involved and effectively um, suggest that, you know, this is just isn't one of those jobs that you want to get involved in. But I then got a phone call from a, a chief officer um, at the time who rings me up and says to me, Paul, um, 24 hours in police custody are, 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 are around. I really would like them to, um, to see what's going on. This is all about transparency and integrity. And, and actually, we want to make sure that we can, they can see the warts and all of Bedfordshire Police. And, um, uh, and I'd like them to be here. And, and I'd like to make that happen, so to speak. So, you know, it's one of those difficult conversations now and again in terms of managing upwards around how you do it. So we agree terms of 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 sort of, of of reference around what they will and what they won't do so anyway they they're on they, they are involved and they're brought in but they're on the periphery and, and i've set out to the sort of the senior investigating officer and the team about what's going to happen and, and where they're going to do we launch into a full-blown um extortion operation and, and the way that we we work on this is that we work with lots of different covert units and we effectively work through that we, you know, that we need to um, to sort of hand over this money uh, at this location. And we bring in a load of, um, of our surveillance assets and, and people to help and support us. Uh, and we do lots of other things behind the scenes in terms of, you know, phones and vehicles and, and, and you know, checks and things like that. And, um, and, and, and the deadline for dropping this money is, is, is that particular evening. So we we set up this operation. We look to drop the money, and um, it, no one picks it up. Uh, and um, uh, and and then out of the blue, I get a phone call from some of our intelligence people that effectively sort of tells me and said, um, "We've we've got something quite interesting that you you may want to hear about. We've obviously done our research in terms of where the the, the businessman's car was. We've looked at all the, the, the you know, the vehicles have gone in there and we've done our telecommunications, etc. And we picked up this particular car, which was a police car, uh, an unmarked police car. Uh, and then further checks then identify that it was driven by a police officer. Uh, what becomes even more alarming, though, Ollie, is that the said police officer is actually part of our surveillance team uh, as such. Um, so imagine this scenario. We've got 24 hours in police custody who are lifetime following and videoing what's happening because they want to put it out on their show. And we've just uncovered that our potential suspect is a serving police officer and he's actually on our surveillance team. So I then end up ringing the said chief officer and effectively give him the good news and say, We've got, uh, just to give you a bit of an update, this is where we are. Um, we've got some good news is that we've identified a suspect. That's fantastic news, Paul. Brilliant. But I'm, I'm confident that they know nothing of this whatsoever and they've just been used um, as a means for um, the victim to be blackmailed. Um, so, so, is this very, so it could be that somebody else has made contact with her, got the details of where she's going to be parked and then used that to photograph this guy. 
Yes, mate, yes. Cheers, pal. Cheers. The bad news is, is mm. the police officer. Oh, that's awful. And he's a serving police officer with Bedfordshire Police. And he's on our team right here, right now. And you can imagine the penny drop. And I, and I, and, and you'll know this, Ollie, from your training and background is that anyone who's involved in kidnapping extortion you're always told about inside agent about somebody who might be involved in there but you know but you've got to always look out for it consider it and and but you never see it i mean i've, I've been involved in lots of kidnaps as you'll have done and, and i and i i've never ever seen it but of course it was in this particular scenario so the said chief officer says to me said paul what we're going to do what what do you think what's what, what what's your advice in terms of where we go with this and the only thing we could do was be absolutely transparent. That's the only thing we could do. We couldn't do anything else other than that. We had to play it out for what it is, because to do anything else would be wrong. It'd be the wrong thing to do, and you know it, it would just end up as a you know as, as a disaster in terms of where we are. So, so that's what we did. We ended up arresting um, the the officer. It was a guy called Gareth Suffling, uh, DC. Um, it was all video by the 24 hours in custody. We, we, we were quite careful around what they could and couldn't do. We were very careful about telling what was happening. And um, and he got charged with uh, he got charged with extortion. He, he tried to come up with some excuse around that he'd been, you know, he'd been trying to do it to give money to charity. And, you know, he had a bit of a thing about um, uh, sex workers being extorted. And that's why I'd done it. And of course, when it when it went out, when the program went out on Channel 4, you know, um, there was a big, big fear that, you know, flipping heck, you know, could this be the biggest own goal that Bedfordshire Police have ever done? But I have to say it was a complete opposite because everyone that watched it, the feedback, the, the overwhelming feedback that came in is, oh my God, um, what a scenario. And actually, mm. the way that you've dealt with it in terms of transparency and integrity and honesty and, and what we'd expect, it, it, you know, the, there, was, there was really, really positive feedback and, and a lot of good stuff that came out of it. DCI Waite sends detectives to the covert surveillance facility to speak to one of the officers monitoring the drop-off point. Gareth. Gareth. How are you doing? I'm right. Gareth, you probably know I'm a little bit of a DS Mark 1 from the Major Crime Team. I recognise you. Okay, these are my colleagues, mate. We're investigating this blackmail today, okay? Yeah. And we're here to arrest you on suspicion of blackmail. Okay. okay? Now, you don't understand, it may harm your defence, but do not mention when questioned, that's on what you later on and call. Anything you do so, may be given evidence. It's a bit of a puzzle as to why somebody would risk their income, their pension, their whole life, their family, for the sake of a £1,000. You're charged with the following offences shown below. You do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defence. You do not mention now something which you later rely on in court. Anything you do see may be given in evidence. Between the 15th of March 2017 and the 25th of March 2017 at Luton in the county of Bedfordshire made an unwarranted demand of money from Mr X with menaces contrary to section 211 of the Theft Act 1968. The second charge, while acting as a public officer, namely a police constable, misconduct did yourself in a way which amounted to an abuse of the public's trust in the office holder contrary to common law. A detective from Bedfordshire has been jailed for trying to blackmail a prostitute's customer in Luton. At St Albans Crown Court, Suffling claimed the money was going to help rehabilitate a prostitute, but the court heard he had a history of financial problems, and his explanation was dismissed. So I now, I now 
lecture at the College of Policing, uh, Ollie, and I and to see detectives, and I and I go through in a bit more detail about the, the that inquiry and about their thought process and considerations. It's quite interesting what some of them would do, wouldn't do, and um, but that's a real life story. Operation Brogan, Gareth Suffling. Yeah, and 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 he ended up getting eighteen months imprisonment, which was quite quite poor. We actually appealed it, uh, and he got a little bit more uh, from that. But such an interesting job. But what you know, and this was a serving police officer, and I, you know, and 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 do you know what as well, and and this is something for for people to consider really, certainly in light of the stuff that's going on with the you know with the Metropolitan Police and and David Carrick and others, you know, that have been mentioned is that this guy Gareth Suffling. He, you know, he was hard, he he wasn't on the radar of professional standards. He was a quiet, unassuming detective that, you know, that had minor money problems. Um, and 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 you know, if you had profiled anybody, you wouldn't have profiled this individual, which was really even more alarming, to be honest. And that just shows you really. So, I guess really nothing ever surprises me uh, in, in policing in terms of what you uncover and what you say. That was going to be my question in terms of whether or not he's on the radar, which you've already answered um, in terms of that particular point. What I, was, what I was going to say is there, we look at the problems today and there are many challenges. Um, you know, this this guy was on your surveillance team in the anti-kidnapping department, so he, he could see the investigation going on around him in terms of knowing what was going on, etc., etc., so, which is quite incredible. But is there, is there an argument... Can can we do more as police services across the country in terms of allowing our colleagues to have the confidence to come forward if they've got problems so that they don't reach these desperate stages where they get they force themselves into a corner where they make really 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 bad decisions? How can we better support them? Absolutely. I mean, I I, I mean, over the years, you know, we'll have seen people who you know who have been arrested, who've been dealt with, and by professional standards departments, and I and I think you know. You know, any professional standards department across UK policing now, whatever force you're in, I, I know that they're very much in terms of that if people have got, you know, an issue or concern, you know, or they would need to declare something, they, you know, they would rather people come forward and, and, and put their hands up and seek help and support. And I've seen it, I've seen it, I've seen it in terms of people, you know, in terms of drug abuse, for example, where, you know, colleagues have, have, have come forward and effectively, you know, they've asked for help and et cetera. And I think... You know, I think, you know, that that's going on. But but the bit the bit that we do need to sort of think about probably in a bit more detail, and, and this probably links into the David Carrick stuff that's going on the Met at the moment, is that is that there's also some individuals in in the service. I would suggest that people have always thought, do you know what, it's not not something quite right about an individual, or they make a remark, or they behave in a particular way, or they do something. And I think there's a responsibility on police officers and public servants is that you know if they have any concerns or any thoughts then you know they should shout them out they should call them out they should sort of speak to those individuals or speak to supervisors uh, and express them because the danger by not doing it is that you look at some of the recent examples the real terrible terrible examples that we've seen you know the Sarah Everard you know murder and, and certainly David Carrick character is that Something like that happens, and unfortunately, it's happening with the Metropolitan Police, and that's by the number of individuals they've got in the Metropolitan Police, you know. But it could happen anywhere. Is that is that you know something? One incident happens, or two incidents happens, and the whole of the police service is considered or brought into disrepute. And I, and I have to say, and, and you know, is that the vast, vast majority of serving police officers, men and women, 
do a fantastic job with integrity and honesty and determination mm. and professionalism. Uh, and it's the very, very, very few who bring it down. So we need to shout it out. We need to call it out for what it is if we have any fears or concerns or suspicions, I say. You're listening to part one of my chat with retired Assistant Chief Constable Paul Forward. In part two, Paul and I discuss the highs and the lows, along with the huge challenges he and his team faced when they reopened the murder investigation into young Ricky Neve. Go ahead, call the police. Um, my son hasn't come back from school yet. Pardon? I said a report with my son missing. He hasn't been back from school. Right. Well, I haven't seen him since this morning. OK, what's your name, please? Mrs Ruth, I'm Neve. Paul describes the moment he received a call from his team following the news that a verdict in their case following an arrest had been reached. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. <laughs>